if you think of an eraser, an eraser serves a purpose. When you think of your mouse, it serves a purpose. When you think of an, a light bulb, it serves a purpose. When you think of a chair, it serves a purpose. And if all these things have a purpose, what about you as a human being? So all of a sudden, it just dawned on me. I just said, you know what? I have a purpose. I'm not an accident. I'm not a placeholder. I'm not an afterthought. I am the real deal. It's now left on me to now discover what that purpose is. When I'm talking in terms of purpose, in particular, is realizing that for me, I'm not a general mass product. I'm not designed to do everything. My mission is not to everyone. Let's be objective here. You're a doctor, I'm a scientist, engineer. Just imagine that you are a product. Just for one second, think that you are a product. Let's remove this purpose and all these gimmicks around the way. Think you're a product. The question is, what kind of a product are you? What does this product do? Who is it for? And the people who have used it, what are they saying about it? Because when you think of an apple tree, an apple tree does not eat its own fruit. That fruit is for other people. And that's what the purpose is. That you existing on earth is not about you. It's to make a difference in people's lives. Whether it's people, a place or a project. So that's when I look at purposes, an apple tree does not eat its own fruit. But at the end of the day, are we making the world a better place? Are we creating life for the next generation? And when you're gone, what's your legacy? What is it going to be? For my leaders and the people that I coach, you have to ask yourself a question. What is your definition of success? Nobody can define it for you. At your last day on earth, what do you want people to read during your obituary? Who are the people that you want to be surrounded by? Because guess what? On your deathbed, on your last day on earth, you're not going to be thinking of the shareholders. You're not going to be thinking of the work you left undone. You're not going to be thinking of, oh, you know, we could have gotten another achievement. We could have made extra five million. That's not what you're going to be thinking about. Whatever you'll be thinking about on your deathbed, the question is, are you prioritizing it? Are you making it number one? My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things 
or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Dr. Richard Oshibanjo is a world-leading coach whose journey in analytical chemistry developed in him a fascination for the chemistry of people and leadership. Now Chief of Staff and Director of Organizational Transformation at the Intel Corporation, he develops and delivers people strategy and is also a member of the prestigious Marshall Goldsmith 100 group of coaches, many of whom have previously graced this stage. He's a frequent contributor to Forbes and the author of the book, Turning Points, Action Today, Change Tomorrow. Richard has a powerful message for people to lead with purpose, informed by his own extraordinary life and career journey. I can't wait to hear more about his path and life lessons, and of course, the unlocked moments of remarkable clarity he experienced along the way. Dr. Richard Oshibanjo, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Oh, thank you so much, Gary, for having me here today. It's a privilege and opportunity, you know, to sit down with you. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation. So where do we need to start in understanding your journey to figure out more about where you are today? Um, they always say, let's go to the beginning. So, uh, um, you know, my, my dad, you know, grew up from a poor family. He was one in 26 children. You know, back in the day, his dad had several wives. So cut long story short, education was his ticket out of poverty. And ultimately, he did his PhD at Birmingham University in analytical chemistry. And um, as a result of that, I had a lot of opportunities growing up relative to him and also relative to the environment you know, I came from. So I'm Nigerian. And as a result of that, I felt I owed my dad my life or what I wanted to do because of the opportunities I had, which was a lot more than a lot of people had. So there was this indebtedness. And one of the things my dad would always also mention is um, if he came back into this world, he would want to study chemistry again. I asked myself that question, like if I came back into this world, my initial answers were yes. But when I was being truthful, when no one was there, I was like, no, this is not you know, what I wanted to do. And what happened was, so I was doing chemistry. I did, you know, I did well in it, even when I did up to my master's in Loughborough and PhD at UC Davis. Um, one moment where it was an unlocked time for me was so on, there was always this tension point whereby I was doing something because, you know, I want my daddy to be happy. Again, I never discussed with him to tell him, oh, I'm doing this because of you. That wasn't the conversation. And there was this tension point of this is what I really loved. So there was that frustration on the inside of me. The other side of it, which really, you know, broke the bubble for me was for some reason, I grew up in a good family, last of three kids, everybody spoiled me. So I wouldn't say, the reason why I'm saying that caveat is, for some reason, I just had a very deep-seated root of insecurity. I don't know where it came from. I just felt I was not enough. I just felt I was, there was, I was flawed. I felt there was something wrong with me. And again, I grew up in Nigeria. Everybody around me looked like me. So it wasn't, I was in a different system of society. And so I didn't have that extra thing going on. But I remember on a particular night whereby I was listening to, I was listening to 
that time we're using cassettes. You know, I'm not trying to date myself. I, I know I look 16. <laughs> I remember cassettes. Yeah. So I was listening to a cassette and there was this, you know, speaker. His name is in late memory, Dr. Miles Monroe. And one of the things he said that night, he said that everything that is designed or made has a purpose. And in that cassette, he said, I can't remember exactly what the things he said, but in, in just some paraphrasing, he if you think of an eraser, an eraser serves a purpose. When you think of your mouse, it serves a purpose. When you think of an, a light bulb, it serves a purpose. When you think of a chair, it serves a purpose. And if all these things have a purpose, what about you as a human being? So all of a sudden, it just dawned on me. I just said, you know what? I have a purpose. I'm not an accident. I'm not a placeholder. I'm not an afterthought. I am the real deal. It's now left on me to now discover what that purpose is. So that for me was really a transformational moment in my life that all of a sudden I felt I was an echo. But that day was when I discovered my voice and that voice over time has led me to the place of me discovering my roar. So how old were you when you were listening to that cassette? I think I was probably maybe 16, 17 at that point in time. It's really interesting. And that resonates a lot with other people that have come on and talked about their unlock moment, that sometimes the moment that they describe and they say that was the unlock, that was when I found clarity, wasn't actually necessarily when they found the answer, but it was when they found the route to the answer. And you had a really, really interesting phrase in there, which was, I discovered I was the echo. What do, you, what do you mean by that when you use the word echo in that way? Yeah, so it's um, like when we look at, I'm trying to put it into context, like when you look at a person, the image, and when there's the sun, you also see the shadow. Like people talk about you walking in somebody else's shadow. So in this time around, like think of um, some of our greatest singers. So let's think about uh, Alexandra Burke. The backup singers, a lot of them are remarkable singers. On that stage, they are the echoes because you are thinking about Alexandra or whoever the musician is, they are the voice. So for me, purpose helped me to discover that I wasn't a backup singer or that's my goal in life that I could be if I had the courage to pursue it, to be the person you know, with the mic at the center stage. So that's what I meant, but until then, I was living in the shadows. I, you know, I was grossly insecure because I was, I was who I was not. Even though society said, you know, do X, Y, and Z, for me, pursuing sciences was scientists will always have jobs. It was about job security. But that job security, following that path, was very different from who I was on the inside. So that in itself creates an insecurity within you. That's really interesting. And so that unlock moment gave you an understanding that there is purpose and that you have some, but you don't know what it is yet. So what did you do? What happened with that clarity? What, what changed for you? What did you do next? Oh, yes. Yeah. So um, it's, uh, it was, it was a, after that day, it was a 15, 20-year journey. So I'm really happy you said it, it's a process. It's a journey. You, you might know, okay, this is where I'm meant to be headed 
it takes time. Like when you plant an apple seed, it takes five to 10 years for the fruit to come out. So what happened after that time was understanding where I wanted to go. So the interesting thing is, even though I had that unlock moment at 16, 17, but don't forget, I still went on to do my PhD, a PhD in chemistry. So I still spent 10 years in the areas I'm like, this is not really I wanted to go. So it wasn't like, yeah, it, it didn't happen like that. So over time, one of the things I actually developed as well for somebody who is also learning from other people who is creative as well, is there were three things or four, I call it, them, I call it the three Ps plus V. And what are these three Ps plus V? The first thing is potential. What am I capable of becoming that I haven't become yet? So for example, when you think of, um, let's think of a pencil back in the days when they got anything wood from trees, the pencil is the finished product, but I'll call the tree itself as the potential. It has a tendency to be transformed. When you think of bread, bread doesn't exist in nature. When you think of diamonds, they start from graphite, then they get processed. So graphite is the raw state, the diamond you know, is, the, is the finished product. So as a result of that, being able to identify what am I capable of becoming that I haven't become yet. So when I invest more time into it, I grow into that. The second P I talk about is passion. What is that thing that energizes me? What's that thing I lose track of time in? What is that thing that you know, just fills me up with energy? Also understanding the things that also de-energize me. Because during the pandemic, I was playing basketball with my son every evening. And one of the things I discovered is every day, it was like I was starting from scratch. And even if I had Shaquille O'Leal, or LeBron James to coach me every day, I probably would have gone from a two to a 3.5 max. My handball coordination, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just not there. It's just not there. So, and that for me, so just quickly, I mentioned that to say in terms of potential, really truly capable of understanding what we had. And of course I've heard of someone, um, someone Carl say something on some of these shows. He says, who was your voice coach? Make sure you ask for a refund back. You know, being clear of, am I capable of becoming this? And second thing, again, as I mentioned, is your passion. Word. And the third thing for me is purpose. And when we talk about purpose, I always mention about a water faucet. When you think of a water faucet, the faucet itself gets lined with water first before it goes into the cup or it goes into wherever you want it to go. So when you think of purpose, it's something that is beyond you. It's you focusing on the bigger picture. And if you don't understand what your purpose is, that means you believe in somebody else's purpose. So it's something beyond you, it's beyond the money, it's beyond the recognition, it's, it's making a difference in people's lives. And of course, the V part of it is, it has to be aligned to your core values. So it's talking in terms of the potential, it's talking in terms of the passion, it's talking in terms of the purpose, that intersection of those three things, right, is what you, I call the life work. And when you look at the Ikigai model as well, one of the things they talk about that in Japan is you also have to find out how do I make a living out of this? You know, if, I'm, if my gift is serving a purpose to people, I should be compensated for that too. So that's kind of the model that I worked with. Like in Potential, one of my really good friends, Vicky um, Espinosa would mention, you know, one of the things she coached me about was when you're taking a walk every day, like in your current job. So again, for your, for your listeners online is have a love-loath list. What are those activities that when you are doing it, you're like, oh my goodness, you know, this is like a best Netflix movie I've watched all day. I want to keep doing it like, ah. But if, what are those things that also drain you like, oh my goodness, I can't wait to get out of this. 
when you look at over time, two months, three months, or even over years, patterns will begin to emerge of those things that you love. And from there, you can begin to feed those pieces together. So in a nutshell, of course, there are many things. Of course, there's a lot of mentors in the process. There's a lot of sponsors in the process. So, but that'll be a, um, a quick synopsis of that. As you're talking through, I'm very conscious of a bit of a parallel in our, in our story. So, so listeners to this podcast will know that I trained in medicine and I did the, the program where I did a PhD alongside it. So from start to end of my medical training after I left school was eight years. And in the seventh year, I realized, came to my unlock moment of clarity that I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't, my unlock moment wasn't I don't want to be a doctor. My unlock moment was I don't have to be a doctor if I don't want to be. So simply opening up the possibility of being able to do something else. Did I know in year one or year two or year three that I wasn't hugely enjoying it? Yeah, but, I, but I've always felt like the next year will be the year when the really exciting stuff happens, the really fun stuff happens, the next rotation or specialty that I train in will be the one that I'll go, that I love and I want to do, do it for a career. And I was interested then when you said my unlock moment of clarity that I had a purpose, it was still another 10 years whilst you were still pursuing chemistry. And I think that will resonate with a lot of people where they may have this sort of deep found feeling that, that it isn't, it probably isn't this, but they continue on the kind of conveyor belt of the thing that they're doing. So what was the journey for you of, of going, I do realize there's something more or something different, but is it the, the easiest thing to do or the safe thing to do is to stay on the chemistry path? What, what was the feeling that kept you going down the chemistry route? And eventually you got to a stage where you figured out that you wanted to do something different. Yeah, I'll answer that question. I also have a question for you. So once I finish, I love you. I think the question I have for you is when you had, when your medical path, how did you even get there? You know, it's a different thing to say, hey, I'm not enjoying this. I would like to know, you know, how you got there. So to answer, you know, to answer your question is, for me, even though I had that moment, and I had this um, feeling of purpose, sense of purpose that there's, um, I'm here for a reason. I'm not just, I'm not a placeholder. I'm not, you know, a shadow. It was really regret. I asked myself the question, like my mentor told me something. He said, there are three things in life that are most important. You know, as somebody who is faith-based, the person mentioned your spouse, who you marry, your career, and where you spend eternity, which is from a spiritual point of view for those who believe that. And I said, okay, I believe I've gotten the two right. The third one that was an issue was my career. And one of the things I said was, I didn't want to have the pain of regret. I didn't want a situation whereby if I don't take that step now, I was just saying, I may be seeing some people like you so I can imagine if I didn't make the posi- my shift and I met someone like you, it should have been generating regret. Like, oh, look at Dr. Gary. Look at, he made the point. And I think that for me was that I didn't want to, and I told myself that even if I didn't make it, at least that I've proven to myself, I tried. So it was that I didn't want to live a life of regret. And also, I didn't want to tell my kids that I had a dream, but I didn't pursue it. And I didn't want to use them as an excuse. I want to be able to tell my kids, if you have a dream, you know, go for it. 
So those were some of the things that, what role model was I going to be as a parent? If I said, oh, well, I had to put food on the table, so I had to keep going along this career. And again, anyone who does that, I did that for a time. It was one of the reasons why I didn't jump the boat on time. You know, but as soon as I could, I left that path of predictability to a path of finding purpose. That's really interesting. And I often work with coaches who are going through process of significant change in their life or career. And really, really commonly, there's this theme of feeling like you're running out of time, whether they're in their early or late 20s or in their 30s or in their 40s. Everybody has the same sense of, but if I don't fix this now, then I've run out of time. And sometimes I say to them, you know, I changed career in my late 20s, and then I changed career again in my late 30s, and then I changed career again in my mid 40s. You know, I became a coach for the first time in my early to mid 40s. I joined a tech startup for the first time in my mid 40s. And I've coached people in their 70s who've made radical career changes. So there's always time. But it's, it's, you've got to choose to do something about it. It's the doing something about it, which is more the issue. For me, um, I think I hadn't appreciated that enough. I hadn't, I hadn't properly reflected on that. And I had this sense of, you know, in, in the medical journey, in, you know, in particular, there are other paths like this, but medicine is, is, is quite extreme in this way that you don't come across people typically who are pursuing other career paths. The career path is very, very defined and structured for you from day one to the end of your fifth year or sixth year or eighth year of, of training, you kind of know exactly what you're, you're supposed to be doing. Um, and the people around you are there because generally they love what they do, you know, in, in a very deep way. It doesn't mean they're always happy, but, but they're there because of a, d- a deep sort of vocation. And when I did, did my PhD, I was in a molecular biology lab and I was in a lab where some of the people I was working with were doctors who were five, to 10 plus years post-qualification and were coming back into the lab to do research projects. And I think the change there was that for the first time, I was really becoming friends with and, 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 and talking with uh, doctors who were talking about their experience of the career in medicine, which wasn't the same as the experience of serving patients and, and those kinds of things, but actually the, the career dynamics. And what I realized was and I felt a bit naive for realizing that time, I think, but I realized that what I was experiencing at this point in time, which was I wasn't enjoying what I was doing now, but I was seeing them and thinking, it's not certain, but there's a reasonable possibility that in five years' time, 10 years' time, 15 years' time, I still won't have found it because there are specific reasons, the dynamic of that career. And then I looked where I was and I thought, okay, I could, in theory, go and do something different, but I would be going to the beginning of a, of a new career because medical training is so specialized. Um, and I thought, well, if I leave it until I'm past 30 and then try and completely change a career, then maybe I'm just too old. And so I thought, if I'm going to go, I do feel like I've got to go now or never. That's, that's what I felt. And, and I thought, well, if I'm going to go and I'm going to go now, then what I do need to do is I need to jump in with both feet into that thing. So. I can't go in and go, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, I jump back into medicine. I need to go, I'm going to jump in. If it doesn't work out, then I'm going to jump again forwards somewhere else. Um, But I can't go, you know, leave medicine, tell people I'm leaving medicine, have all of the 
sort of impact of telling people I'm leaving medicine, then a week later be back and say, oh, you know, I was wrong because my, my, my career would never be the same again. And in, in retrospect, actually, I think that was a really helpful thing because it meant that I committed in a really full way. You know, I went into the business world without any management or business training. Uh, and I was very green, very naive, and I had to learn a very steep learning curve. Most of the people that I, that I worked with in my first job had done finance and management at top business schools as their training. So they were like, years ahead of me. Um, but I think that I learned um, something about ownership in, in that moment. And I never after that felt um, scared of jumping into something very new, you know, because going through that experience, I'd done that kind of jumping out of the plane without a parachute thing and having to figure out how to fly somewhere on the way down. When, when you left your PhD, how, how did you feel? Did you, did you go from chemistry into, into science or did you pivot at that point into, into the business world? You know, one of the things that it reminds me of is one thing that Josh Campbell said, that the cave you fear to enter has the treasure that you seek. You know, and you having the courage. So I think even for you, for somebody who is going from medicine, the trajectory of medicine from a finance perspective is very comfortable, well-respected, well-regarded. So you left your comfort zone. You left that safety. And you are going, and one thing I truly believe is that the true metric for success is fulfillment. Because a lot of things can make us happy, but very few things would tick that fulfillment meter. And, you know, you went in search of that fulfillment. You know, you went in, in search of, I would say also for purpose, and, um, and you had the courage. And you also mentioned something which I thought was powerful, that I went with both feet in. And that even if I didn't find what I thought it was, I was going to move forward. There was no safety net. So I think that's pretty powerful, even, for, you know, so just to take a pause, you know, on that, on that sentence, um, on, you know, what you shared with us. Going to your question in terms of, did I miss chemistry? When I left, for me, it was, um, mentally, I didn't look back. Do I have any regrets? Absolutely not. Because in the kind of work that I do, a lot of the people I work with are very technical. Very technical. So one of the things that is done for me is actually help build credibility. Because it's almost like at least this person gets us. This person understands what we're saying for whatever it's worth, right? That helps. So I think for me, it's giving me a breath off will i go back and change anything i did i say yes and no because at times i wonder and say if i got onto this track 10 15 years ago what would be happening now but again the experiences i have the tech very strong technical acumen that i have been able to pick up technical things easily overall has been has been a bonus i read a forbes article that you wrote once and you said a common question you ask your own coaches is who are the people or defining moments that have shaped your leadership philosophy from childhood until now? And what actions and behaviours impacted you the most? And if you were to ask yourself that question, who would you say are the, the people that have shaped your leadership philosophy on your journey? Yeah, three people come to mind right now. The first one, like I mentioned earlier, was 
um, Dr. Miles Monroe. Again, he was very purpose-driven. He came out from the Bahamas. So again, he, he was one in 12 children, even and his background, he, they slept on the floor. He spoke about roaches and rats sharing the same space with them and seeing how he's been able to transform millions of lives. So that sense of purpose, for me, that where that was birthed in me. The other person as well is John C. Maxwell, who is a world-renowned leadership guru himself. And again, he was a faith-based leader who transitioned into the corporate world. And again, he's been able to impact Africa and million and people all over the world. So it's all about change. It's all about making a difference in people's lives to make the society better. The third person for me also has been Marshall. Marshall Goldsmith, so I'm thankful and privileged to be a part of his team, but also just looking at the generosity of him and also the group in terms of people sharing what they have, creating a stage, creating a platform, you know, for people, I think that has been, that's been huge. And because for me, even I've seen people in my life um, Jeff Cohn and um, Jeff Cohn, who pulled me into the Marshall Group, is been people seeing that gift that you have, even though it, it had not produced a, a fruit. But people are saying we're going to take a huge bet on you, even when you exceed. So these are the you know great people who have inspired me, who have believed you know in me so as well. It's really resonant, and people that will have listened for a, a while will know that I interviewed Marshall Goldsmith on the Unlock Moment about his book, The Earned Life, and his whole philosophy around regret and, and avoiding it and uh, living in the moment and finding happiness in the moment. And it's a really, really powerful episode of The Unlocked Moment, actually. I know lots of people who've listened to it and have found great comfort and clarity through hearing the way he sees the world. Um, purpose is an interesting world, word because for a lot of people, I think that they, they hear and they appreciate the mantra of finding your purpose is a good thing and purpose-driven leadership is a good thing. But maybe they haven't yet found their purpose. Maybe they, like you, you know, when you're a teenager, they, they might know that there's one there somewhere, but they're trying to figure it out. When you're working with people to understand their purpose, what are the different kinds of things that people have that, that make them purpose-driven? Are there different things for different people? Yeah, you know, I really, I love the, I love what you mentioned, Gary, is, you know, at times, purpose is another like buzzword that people use all the time or like trust. And again, it means different things to a lot of people. So just to, when I'm talking in terms of purpose in particular, is realizing that for me, I'm not a general mass product. I'm not designed to do everything. My mission is not to everyone. When you think of even the iPhone, when you think of, think of a Ferrari, think of whatever you want to think about. When a manufacturer makes this product, they have an audience in mind. And even when you buy electronics, when we talk about the warranty, you only get your warranty when you use the product for its intended Purpose. That's when you get it. So it's understanding that also the realization that you could have Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, and Burger King all next to each other, and all of them are profitable. Because even though they're all in the food business, each and every one has a different flavor of the food they sell. As a result of that, they attract different people. So going to your question, 
one of the things when I'm coaching or when I'm giving talks is I'll ask the question, let's be objective here. You know, you're a doctor, I'm a scientist, engineer. Let's ask, just imagine that you are a product. Just for one second, think that you are a product. Let's remove this purpose and all these gimmicks around the way. Think you're a product. The question is, what kind of a product are you? What does this product do? Who is it for? And the people who have used it, what are they saying about it? Because when you think of an apple tree, an apple tree does not eat its own fruit. That fruit is for other people. And that's what the purpose is. That you existing on earth is not about you. It's to make a difference in people's lives. Whether it's a people, a place, or a project. So that's when I look at purposes. An apple tree does not eat its own fruit. So all the gifts you have, all the genius you have, all the brilliance you have, it's not just about having a chateau in Paris. It's not about having the latest getaway. All those things are wonderful. But at the end of the day, are we making the world a better place? Are we creating life for the next generation? And when you're gone, what's your legacy? What is it going to be? So that's the questions I tend to ask people. And for me, that's why I mentioned earlier that I believe the true metric for success is fulfillment. It's personal. I can't talk to you what your purpose is. I don't know whether you fulfilled your purpose. It's a really deep personal question. I really love your use of metaphor. Throughout our whole conversation, I'm just <laughs> remember all these ideas. I'm going to listen to the recording back to, to hear them all. You said purpose is the new paycheck. What does that mean? Oh, yeah, no, thanks for, thanks for asking that question. When we looked at what happened during the pandemic with millions of people dying worldwide, even for those in the medical profession, people were getting burnt out. And McKinsey actually also did a study. And that 70% of people are now saying that they want meaningful work. And what they are talking about meaningful work is, is not just about the paycheck. It's not like when the 40, 1940s and 50s, whereby people got a job just to survive. People have options these days. So when I'm saying purpose is the new paycheck, people want to do something that they feel is making a difference because that's what gets me up early in the morning. Okay, I'm working, I get up 6 a.m., I go to bed midnight doing something I do not love. And number one, the company could either go bust and I could be fired or worst case, I could live my life. At the end of the day, I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. And that made me also look at when I'm, when I'm doing my keynotes, I look at it in three ways. And I think this has been widely established as well. Is, so my interpretation of this is when you're in a job, who you are and what you do are two separate things. So what you tend to do is that the job feeds, you're trying to get something for the job that is feeding or sponsoring something else, whether it's your family, whether it's a hobby. When you're in a career, it's like two circles, it's like a Venn diagram. It could be 20 to 60%, who knows? But it's your comfort zone. You could do it from your sleep. You've been doing it for 10, 15 years. But to a certain degree, it's feeding something. You're getting something out of it. When you're in a calling, it's a totally different thing because you love the work for the work itself. Even if you are not getting paid, of course, we need to get paid. No questions about that. But itself, it brings some form of satisfaction. So for me, purpose is doing something that fulfills you, that is adding to people's lives and also leaves you know, the legacy. 
So that's how I look at that. You know, purpose is the paycheck again. McKinsey and several people have done that study from an engagement perspective, from a potential perspective. I'm going to give you another analogy just to crack you up. Is just to crack you up is this. Imagine you have 10 Priuses, all red, in the parking lot. And somebody says, I left my pencil under the seat. And, none of the, and all of them are the same. Brand new, they don't have plate numbers. How are you going to discover which one to go to? It's going to be difficult. But if someone says, there are 10 Priuses out there, all red color, all the same things, but goes to the one that has a plate number of XKY533. All of a sudden, you have direction, you're able to go there very quickly, and that's what Purpose does. So even in a crowded world that a lot of people are doing, even things that you're doing, Purpose is what separates you out. And that's why for me, Purpose is extremely important. And here's me thinking, can I just get you a spare pencil? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, I know that you've been doing a lot of your latest thinking around this idea of the leadership drought. Tell me more about what, what the leadership drought is for you. No, yeah, no, thanks. Uh, you, you're you're going to get me started on that one, Gary. Again, it's, it's looking about since the pandemic, three years after, a lot of things have happened. Remember from the when I, I remember, you know, I just got back from Mexico on a leadership um, trip and we're meant to be at home for two or three weeks. That was February 2020. I think it was actually February 25, 2020. I got that email and just said, okay, you need to work from home for the next few weeks. And today is April 17, 2023. I haven't been back, fully back to the office. So as someone like me who is a super extrovert, that you get your energy from people, that was an adjustment that I had to go through. From working and being with people to working from home, that was one thing. Again, having the kids, everybody working in the same place at the same time, that was an adjustment. Then what happened after that? It was inflation. It was the mortgage rates. It was the interest rates. And all of this have impercussions. It was the cost of everything going up, not being able to socialize with people. Now, think about leaders of organizations. They have their organizations or businesses have to survive because we've not been here before. So you cannot use the old playbooks. So it's a place of experimentations. But guess what? The shareholders are not giving you a sabbatical to say, oh yeah, it takes six months to figure it out. No, you have to deliver because anything you do, people could be out of work. Your company could close down. You know, your legacy could have been written. So there, there's a lot of pressure. Think about the um, war in Ukraine. Think about the tension between Taiwan, US and China. All of these have ramifications on businesses. And it's like leaders have been on a treadmill for the past three years. It's exhausting. Now, this is the problem. With hydrangea plants, if you don't water them within 48 hours, they start to wilt. You can tell there's a problem. The leaves start to go brown. The problem is with leaders, and even for all of us, including those listening, at times it doesn't show. That burnout doesn't show. And because you have an official title of a leader, you have to put the smile on, even when the makeup on the inside is flaking. So this leadership drought is the concept that all of us have been affected by this in one shape or the other. And it's very important for our mental health, for the success of our personal life, for, this, for our well-being, that we identify that 
yes, there's something happening in me and I need to pay attention. So, but there's this concept of this drought that we've been on that in order for us to get back to the place we were and even exceed that from a well-being perspective, we have to do a self-diagnosis of ourselves. We have to do a diagnosis of our leadership teams. We have to do a diagnosis of our employees as well. Because once we're able to do that, we're able to reinvigorate the process. We're able to energize the process, the people on the teams. And um, Simon Sinek said something which I love. He said, when you invest in a company, you want a return on investment. No surprises there. When people are emotionally bought in, they want to contribute. And that's the distinction of having members and followers. So in the leadership drought, why you need to get back invigorated is you want to cultivate members. Because followership is what people can do for you. Members is about the cause, is about the bigger picture. So anyway, I could go on and on, but that's the, the leadership drought I've been talking about. We've been on a treadmill for three years and people, again, I'm not saying, you know, if I use the word take a break, is, well, the, the company has to continue. But that's the aspect whereby you have to find out what the water is for you, whether it's your family, whether it's stepping back, whether it's having successors, whether it's delegating more so you can breathe. So you can have that space to create, you can have that space to innovate and all of that. I talk sometimes with people about hamster wheels and playground roundabouts, those little merry-go-rounds, the little ones that whiz round. And, and I say the difference between the two is that if you're you can be running, you can be going 100 miles an hour on both of them. Um, the difference between them is that if you're on a hamster wheel, to regain control, you just stop running and it stops. And on the merry-go-round in the playground, you kind of need somebody else to help you to slow it down. I'm working with quite a lot of leaders or seeing quite a lot of leaders at the moment that are running at 100 miles an hour. They're in crisis or sometimes they're in remarkable growth. Um, they've been running too fast for three years. They are burned out. They are exhausted. And they can't see any way in which they can slow down and stop because they feel like circumstances around them don't give them the opportunity to do that. So when you're working with leaders like that and you're saying, look, here's the great philosophy about, you know, you need to look after yourself, you need to pull down the oxygen mask, all, those, all that good kind of stuff. And they go... But in the real world of what I've got to handle right now, the world isn't slowing down for me. My board expectations aren't changing. My team needs me. Opportunities are coming left, right, and center. What do you say to them in the real world context to help them to reframe their role and the way they're going to adopt it? Now, that's a great question, Gary. And uh, when I go back to the concept of people who are in jobs, that who they are, and what they do are different, but they have to keep on, they have to keep on doing that because they'll be out of the house. That dream vacation they want to get to Aruba or Bora Bora wouldn't happen if they didn't have that job. But one thing we do know is that they are not happy. So I think for, not that I think, so for my leaders and the people that I coach, you have to ask yourself a question. What is your definition of success? Nobody can define it for you. At your last day on earth, what are the most important, what do you want people to read during your obituary? Who are the people that you want to be surrounded by? Because guess what? On your deathbed, on your last day on earth, you're not going to be thinking of the shareholders. 
you're not going to be thinking of the work you left undone. You're not going to be thinking of, oh, you know, we could have gotten another achievement. We could have made extra five million. That's not what you're going to be thinking about. Whatever you'll be thinking about on your deathbed, the question is, are you prioritizing it? Are you making it number one? And it's also saying that it's just, it's the balance scorecard. Nobody is saying you should give up the work that you're doing. But John Maxwell also said something. He said, you know, and I mentioned this to my leaders as well, is a leader without a successor is a failure. If you don't have anyone to take your spot and to take your place, then that's a single point of failure. That's not a growth strategy, it's job security. So if you look about that, so for leaders, this we are going through things people haven't done before. What are the next set of leaders we are empowering and also coaching by the side? That 10, 15 years, because that's your legacy. Those are the people who are going to do things after you're gone. So it's an opportunity to coach and to bring people along as well. Because other than that, but also, the show must go on. The show will go on with or without you. If something happens to you today, the company is not going to stop. They will find your replacement. So we also have to realize that you are not really that indispensable. And the show will go on. The question is, if it goes on, are you okay? Is your family okay? Are your loved ones okay? And the things that are truly important to you, have you prioritized them? I love that. You're not the first person on the podcast to have broken out into song, but you are by far the best singer. <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> yes, indeed. I know you've got a little book coming out soon called Rich Nuggets. Tell us a little bit about Rich Nuggets. Like you, um, no, thank you so much for bringing that, Gary. Like you mentioned, I, I bust out in a lot of analogies and I don't prepare in advance for them. They just come out. <laughs> <laughs> they just come out. And some certain things based on experiences, based on my coaching clients, based on things that I'm seeing around the world, that's how they just come. And a lot of people have mentioned to me, you know, how those analogies, how those portable quotes have actually simplified, you know, the concepts for them. So I've just put about, I have a lot, about three, 400 that I'm putting up in a book that, you know, whatever it means to you, whatever it makes a difference to you, that people can do something very digestible very simple, your own interpretation, you know, that you can take along with you. Fantastic. And when's it coming out? In about eight weeks. Fantastic. No, not very long. Where, where can people find out more about you? Also, um, go check me out on LinkedIn. So um, Dr. Richard Oshibanjo, you can also go to my personal website, which is richardoshibanjo.com. So LinkedIn is a, a great place. I have some rich nuggets on YouTube as well. So if you type rich nuggets, I have a few videos on there. So I guess if you put it on, if you put me on Google search, you'll be able to see um, a few, a few th th things there. That's fantastic. We'll put the links in our show notes. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For senior leader and world-class coach, Dr. Richard Oshibanjo, it was discovering his own sense of purpose that started him on a path that led halfway around the world and becoming a world-class thought leader on purpose-driven leadership. Richard, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Or oh, again, thank you so much for what you do, Gary. It's, um, I've, I've been blessed by being here. 
know it or not, even from your story, you are empowering other people as well to really walk into their full potential and to truly ex not to leave anything on the table. So thank you so much for being a blessing to our generation. Thank you so much. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the Unlock Moment.